Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 20th. Today, India's prime minister seeks a second term in the biggest election ever, a revival for Florida's Space Coast, and a college class graduates without debt. Narendra Modi is the prime minister of India. He was elected in 2014, and he is running for re-election right now. I'm Joanna Slater, and I'm the India Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. India's election results are expected this week. The election is so massive, it took six weeks to conduct. It's a huge challenge. First of all, just in terms of geography, they have to do a lot of traveling. They have to run all over the place, usually in helicopters, to campaign. There are 900 million voters, 450 parties, but all eyes are on one man, Narendra Modi. One of the things that Modi has done quite successfully is to try to turn what is effectively lots of local and regional elections into a a national presidential-style election. India doesn't have a presidential election, it has a parliamentary election, but the way Modi has campaigned, he has made it feel like you're voting for him, even though you're not directly voting for him. And that has been a successful strategy in 2014, and that's what he's trying again to do now. Modi's main opponent is the Indian National Congress, the party that helped India win independence. The head of that party is Rahul Gandhi. He comes from Indian political royalty and is the fourth generation of his family to lead the party. And still, he's not expected to beat Modi, who won handily in 2014. So he ran a really positive campaign five years ago. He promised development for all. He promised millions of jobs. Uh, He promised a change after 10 years of uh, rule by the Congress party. He really uh, had a kind of maybe hope he changes a little bit too much, but but he certainly had a, a positive message. And voters really responded to it, even people who normally would not back uh, a candidate from the Bharatiya Janta party, his party because of its Hindu nationalist ethos. And has he made good on those promises? That's a big question. (laughs) I would say the answer is in some cases. On the economic front, where jobs are concerned, that's really where he has fallen short. The jobless rate had surged under the Modi government to a 45-year high. So in that respect, he did not 
fulfill his promise. In other respects, he certainly has made efforts to improve India's infrastructure. He has done some amount of economic reforms, including a nationwide value-added tax that businesses really wanted to make their lives easier. At the same time, he's also done some very strange things on the economic front, uh, like this move called demonetization, which basically was when he invalidated nearly all of India's currency as a way of combating corruption, as a way of combating so-called black money. But what it effectively did was made much of the economy grind to a halt. He has been, I think it's fair to say, a polarizing figure. This is where he shares some things in common with a certain American president. You either love them uh, or you hate them. Uh, He has become certainly larger than the party he represents. Much of the campaign material that you see now in the election features his face. He is bigger than the party. There's a, a little bit of a cult of personality going on here. And so the fact that he has created this big cult of personality around him, is that working for him? How do people feel about him? I do think it's working for him. He remains a very popular politician, all things considered. He also has benefited in the last few months because there was a terrorist attack in Kashmir where 40 Indian security forces were killed. And he has really cultivated uh, this image as being tough on national security. So he has now campaigned on his own muscular approach to assuring India's security and the fact that he ordered airstrikes on Pakistan about two weeks after the attack in Kashmir. There have been some criticisms that Modi has focused on divisiveness as a way to win this election. What do people mean by that? And is that a fair criticism? What people mean by that is the way that Modi, and not just Modi, but also senior leaders uh, in his party, the way they talk about Hindus and Muslims. So India is 80% roughly Hindu and about 14% Muslim. And the fact is, in this campaign, a number of leaders of the BJP have engaged in anti-Muslim rhetoric. When you ask BJP leaders about this, they would resolutely deny that the party has anything against Muslims and treats them any differently than any other Indian citizens. But in much of the rhetoric of some of these very important figures, it's, it's quite, it's, it's hard, to, hard to deny. So who's running against Modi, and do they have a shot? The main opposition leader is a person named Rahul Gandhi. He's the head of the Indian National Congress. The Indian National Congress is the party that has ruled or did rule India for much of its post-independence history. And Rahul Gandhi, amazingly, would be the fourth person in his family to be prime minister of India if he won 
this election. It's, it's a pretty unbelievable dynasty. So he probably has a little bit of celebrity on his side. He has a little bit of celebrity on his side, but it actually works against him. The chances of him becoming prime minister are very slim, even mm. if the Congress party does better in this election than it did in the last election, which is what the expectation is. It's not clear that the other parties in India would back Rahul Gandhi as a kind of coalition prime ministerial candidate. What do you think it would mean for India for Modi to be reelected? I think it fundamentally depends on how well Modi does in this election. If he does well or better than expected, then I think you have a kind of endorsement of the approach that he has taken over the last five years. And you would expect India to move further away from the kind of secularism that its founders promoted and more toward this idea that it is fundamentally a Hindu nation, which is what people like uh, Narendra Modi and, and his party certainly believe. Joanna Slater is the India bureau chief for The Post. Results of the election are expected on Thursday. Florida's Space Coast used to be a big deal. Welcome to Brevard County, the Space Coast of Florida, where the dreams of tomorrow are made possible today. When most people think of the Space Coast, they think of space shuttles and rockets. The Space Coast is a stretch of coastal land that has been home to the NASA rocket launches since the beginning of the space age. That's Christian Davenport. I'm a reporter at The Washington Post, and I cover the space and defense industries here. Everything about the area just screams, this is a space town. The area code is 321. They had it changed to mimic the countdown. One of the high schools there is Astronaut High School. There are memorials to astronauts all over town. You know, if you think of it, even before the space age, I mean, I think it was just sort of a stretch of empty, swampy coastline that, you know, that people would say there are more mosquitoes than people. But then with the uh, beginning of the Cold War space race and this huge infusion of government cash intended to, you know, beat the Soviet Union in the race to the moon, the space coast in this town was born almost overnight. One, zero, and liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. But with the end of the U.S. space shuttle program in 2011, the Space Coast's future suddenly seemed uncertain. Right now, NASA and the United States government does not have the ability to fly human beings to space. And we lost that capability when the space shuttle program you know, went away. And when that happened, you know, thousands of people lost their jobs. You know, like the timing was coupled with sort of the height of the Great Recession that was taking hold and hitting, you know, states like Florida particularly hard. But in the last few years, private space exploration companies have been flocking to the Space Coast to take advantage of the abandoned infrastructure. Now the area is seeing a revival. Christian talked to one of the Space Coast natives who's already profiting from a booming business. Brian Scott, the owner of a brew pub. You know, people want to come over and 
drink some craft beer and have a have a good uh, dinner before the launch. Uh, and so it, it really lends to our business with launches as well. And uh, I wish they'd have them every day. <laughs> and you could see at one table, uh, there was sort of a NASA crowd hanging out. There was a crowd from Blue Origin, the company founded by Jeff Bezos. Just an FYI, in addition to owning Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos also owns the Washington Post. You see, you know, this infusion of young people in a way like you had, you know, during Apollo, but it's interesting that they're working for private companies and not the government. Even opening the brewery up downtown here began to revitalize. People saw that, hey, you could open up a thriving business here. And uh, so we, we've seen a lot of companies begin to open up next to us and, and beside us as the economy grows been covering the sort of new space age that, you know, has been brought about by private enterprise, by companies like SpaceX, uh, which was founded by Elon Musk. And we would go down there as journalists and we would cover the launches. The story we weren't telling, though, was what happened in that bubble, but we didn't see the broader community outside of the, the gates there. And we wanted to sort of explore that and to see how all of this activity, how that was manifesting itself and, and how it was changing the Florida Space Coast, which had always been just sort of a government town. And that change from being a government town to being a town dominated by all these private companies trying to get into space, what does that mean for the town itself? Well, it means a lot of things. I mean, it, it's in some ways maybe not as dependable as, you know, purely government that you'll see companies come and go. I mean, I think there's a reason why, you know, a lot of these efforts are funded by billionaires who have the capital and the resources to be able to to do this and to maintain it for a long time. And like you said, a lot of these companies are coming in and out. And obviously the ones that are funded by billionaires and that have a long game for their space ventures, I mean, maybe they're not going to be leaving anytime soon. But is there a sense that this is risky for these communities or, or that all of this could fall apart like it did before? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely risky. I mean, anytime any business in space is, is risky. There's that old saw that, you know, that people say the quickest way to become a millionaire in space is to start out as a billionaire. And so local leaders know that. And, you know, while they have great faith in the commercial space industry, they also really tried to diversify their economy and went to great lengths knowing that, you know, and they, had, they knew that the space shuttle was going to go away and that they were going to have to do something. So they, you know, were pretty proactive in setting up taxing dis districts and trying to woo other industries to that area. But let's face it. I mean, the Florida Space Coast is tied to space, and that's, you know, the sort of driver of the economy. And if that's not government and it's private industry, then that's inherently going to be more risky. So you went down to the Space Coast. What was it like when you got there? And what did the people say there when you talked to them? So I wanted to talk to people who had been there you know, at the dawn of the space age, it worked for NASA, but that were still there and that still had a hand in it. And we talked to one gentleman named Bob Seek who worked on the Apollo missions and then it worked Apollo 12. Well, during the height, in, in the early to mid-60s, up to the height of Apollo, it was, it was the proverbial boom town. They couldn't build the houses quick enough and, uh, and add more roads. Uh, and businesses and build more schools and churches. He actually, because he did Apollo 12, he didn't do Apollo 11. So he got to watch that with his family and was telling us the story of he and his wife going down to the water, 
uh, and they had to park several blocks away, and they had a you know a young baby, and they had to push the stroller down just because the you know the streets were just jammed with cars. And he was telling us like people just like left their cars in the middle of the street, and so they had to walk. And they're watching, you know, the beaches are just packed, and he and his wife sort of elbows him and says, points to this woman who's pulling up the grass and sticking it in a plastic bag. And they went over to her and said, what are you doing? And she said, well, you know, I was looking for all the vendors are sold out of all the, you know, memorabilia, and I just wanted something to remember this moment by. So she had pulled the grass out, you know, for what, you know, saying I was there when uh, Apollo 11 launched to go to the moon. And then he was talking about, you know, the the bad times when, you know, after Apollo and people had left and they abandoned their homes and like literally leaving their keys in the door. It was a, it was a proverbial downer, which occurred right around the time of Apollo 11 when the reality sunk in that, wow, there, there's going to be massive layoffs and they're going to be a year earlier than we thought we were. So, so that was a depressed time. And then now today, you know, you see a resurrection of that. And even he talked about the excitement coming back, you know, with these private companies. And it's not quite like human spaceflight. I mean, there's nothing like human spaceflight when there's a person on that rocket, you know, risking their life, going on a, you know, an exploration, even a low Earth orbit or to the moon and something exciting like that. But, you know, recently we had the second launch of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket, which is the most powerful rocket in operation today. And people come back and watch that. And it's like act two in, in the drama, you know, which is getting people really excited there today. Why are all these private space companies coming to Cape Canaveral? Like, why, why wouldn't they just build their companies in L.A. or Seattle or someplace trendier? Well, SpaceX is based in L.A. and Blue Origin is based in Seattle. But to launch a rocket, you know, the, the Florida Space Coast is sort of ideal just given its location right near the water because you don't want to launch a rocket over a populated area. That said, SpaceX is building its own private launch site in Brownsville, Texas that would, you know, fly out over the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, because now Cape Canaveral, they're a little bit worried. They don't want to be constrained to a government launch site and have all these other rockets going off. So there are a whole bunch of old government launch pads that have just been sitting there wasting away for years. And, you know, the most high profile of all of the launch sites is Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. That's where uh, the Apollo 11 mission, you know, for example, went off, where Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin in their Saturn V rocket went to the moon off that launch pad. It's where the first shuttle mission launched from. It's where the last shuttle mission launched from. But then when the shuttle went away, it was just literally wasting away in the salt air, rusting away. And NASA didn't know what to do with it. And then along came, you know, this eccentric billionaire named Elon Musk and his, you know, space company, and they took it over. So now this iconic bit of real estate that, you know, is you look to for many of the biggest moments in the history of human spaceflight is not in NASA's hands. It's not in the government's hands. It's in the hands of private industry. And I think that in many ways tells the story of what's going on at the Space Coast. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Christian Davenport covers space enterprises for The Post. And now, one more thing. 
generations of my family who have been in this country. We're going to put a little fuel in your bus. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. On Sunday, billionaire Robert F. Smith pledged to pay off the student debt for all 400 members of Morehouse College's graduating class. Well, first I was like, okay, I heard something about student loans. And then then I asked my neighbor, like, what did he say? 22-year-old Rayshon Williams is one of those graduates. Then he just started yelling, he's paying off our student loans. And I was like, what? So I got up and just started screaming to the top of my lungs. According to some estimates, Smith's gift could eliminate a total of $10 million in debt for the students. I got a little bit emotional because I come from a one-parent home. I'm from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And the reason I'm here was solely based on faith. Because semester by semester, I I didn't know whether or not I was going to have the money required to pay for that semester. And every break, every summer, every winter break, I kept having conversations with my family about, okay, how am I going to pay off this semester? And I racked up a ton of debt. And now when he said that, that, that made me really emotional. I, like, I almost cried. There are about a little over 44 million Americans that have collectively $1.5 trillion worth of debt. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers education and student debt for The Post. She says that Black graduates face an especially hard time when it comes to managing student loan debt. African-Americans disproportionately are burdened with student loans, may not necessarily always have the highest amount of student debt, but in terms of having trouble paying it back, they are a population that struggle a little bit more than others for a myriad of reasons, but mainly because labor market discrimination, having less resources, racial wealth gap. So whereas a similarly situated student who says, say, graduates with $30,000, $40,000 worth of student loans, who is white, may have family who can probably help them out if things got really bad. One thing that stuck with me is that he did this and he wanted us to pay it forward. So because he said that, I'm going to make it my goal one day to also pay it forward to someone who is less fortunate and someone who deserves such a generous gift. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.